Hey, quickly before we get started, if you can get to St. Paul, Minnesota on October 13th, do. We are hosting the hilarious Night of Depression at the Fitzgerald Theater with guests Paul F. Tompkins, Amy Mann, Ted Leo, and Anna Marie Cox. It's going to be a lot of fun jokes and songs and coping. It's going to be a blast. I want to hang out with you. Tickets are available at FitzgeraldTheater.org. Is depression funny? Everything's funny. I know for a fact that if someone kidnapped me and put me in the trunk of their car and I could slip the gag off, I'd be trying to shout through the back seat and make them laugh in the hopes that they'd let me go. I know, whatever happened, if someone chained me up in a basement and put me through the worst forms of abuse you can imagine, the next time the basement door opened, I feel like I'd be going, Hey man, what's up with these stains on your walls? They kind of like, you know, they look like this, right? That one stall, that one stain is kind of, doesn't it look sort of like a, it's shaped like Hugh Jackman's Wolverine hair. How come that one, please don't do, oh God, he's doing it again. And I'd be trying to make jokes because that's the escape mechanism I know. <laughs> Something wrong with me, I got a sadness I can't shake now. Is there something I can't take now? It's the hilarious world of depression. I'm John Moe. Sasquatch, the Loch Ness Monster, Yeti, Bigfoot. Are they myths or are they the most cunningly elusive animals on Earth? I'm pleased to report that our hilarious World of Depression squadron was able to capture and interview a specimen who we have spent years pursuing. My name is Christopher Gethard. I am a comedian. He's also a writer, host of podcasts and TV shows, and a monologuist. He's acted on The Office and in movies like Spy with Melissa McCarthy. We finally caught up with Chris in a Minneapolis hotel room. Yeah, it's one of these rooms where you walk in as a comedian and you go, oh... This is nice enough. Great. This is not the most depressing place I've ever stayed. Chris was in town doing stand-up. His wife Haley was there with him. Lately, he's been best known for his one-man show, Career Suicide. It ran off-Broadway and was a special on HBO. And it's all about his struggles with depression. Pretty average nerdy kid interests, you know, and, uh, and no real traumas to report at home. I, my parents are still in love and married after 40 years. Like, I don't know. I don't know what caused it. Like... Hate to say it, but sometimes people just break. Welcome to a comedy show. Welcome. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen. We've been trying to get Chris on our show since we started the show because he's like the LeBron James of being depressed and explaining it. Where'd you grow up? Grew up in West Orange, New Jersey. Big family, small family? Um, small nuclear family, mom, dad, brother, and me, but I grew up in a very Irish Catholic neighborhood, so my dad's parents lived, um, sort of catty corner across the street from us. I could see into my grandparents' backyard from my bedroom window. My dad's sister lived right around the corner with her three daughters. My mom's parents were about four blocks away. My mom's sister was two blocks in the other direction, so I was kind of, uh, around a lot of family, but we weren't. We weren't the closest family. It's not like I hung out with my aunt and my cousins around the block, really, ever. Chris says he was a comedy fan, loved Eddie Murphy, but the comedy in his house was a bit more complex, such as when his mom and aunt got together. It was one of those things I always remember. You'd, you'd, you'd hear these stories about how they grew up or things they dealt with, and uh, we'd all be crying, laughing, and then everybody would leave, and you'd go and lay down in bed at night and go, oh, that's actually the saddest story I've ever heard. So humor was a big coping mechanism from the start. I think I get a little bit of wit from my mom's side and storytelling, and here's how you exaggerate and lean into things from my mom's side. My dad's family has a real sense of humor too, but it's a much more sort of like abrasive, like let's make each other uncomfortable for our own amusement thing. <laughs> and I feel like if you have followed my work over the years, there's kind of a 50-50 blend of like heart and then also, like, why are you doing this? It's making me uncomfortable. Like, uh -huh. that's, I think, a pretty even split. You can see both sides of my family show up in my work. Until recently, he hosted The Chris Gethard Show, starting on stage, then on public access cable, then on the cable channel True TV. 
it was at points a kind and sincere show, but also sometimes deliberately awkward and uncomfortable. It was a big glimpse into Chris's humor and his mind. But let's back up to Chris as a kid in New Jersey. Around adolescence, depression came calling. And I remember so distinctly when I was in junior high school, my brother was in high school, and he had some friends come over, and uh, they were all hanging out in our backyard. And I was just kind of sitting off in a corner by myself uh, in a chair. And I never forgot, one of my brother's friends, who's you know three or four years older than me, he, he just walked by and he quietly was like, hey man, you all right? And I remember so distinctly him asking me that and for the first time thinking to myself, oh, someone sees from the outside what's going on. I gotta figure out how to put a better game face on. That's interesting that the, in the moment it got recognized, your first instinct was cover it up better. Yeah, for sure. Why for sure. did you need to cover it up? I I would say I grew up like right on the cusp of like oh, like like middle class and working class. I think when I was young, my dad was very much still like working class in that like month to month way, um, and you know, I think a lot of people who grew up working class there's not really time to stop and say, hey, mom and dad, I'm sad. Like, it's not how you operate. You go drink, right? Like, you, my, there were a lot of alcohol, a lot of kids who I grew up with, their dads were alcoholics. And I bet from the modern perspective, you look back at it and go, well, some of them probably could have taken medication and booze was their medication. Mm -hmm. I think in my family, that was maybe a little bit of a tradition. Um, I can look at it now from the perspective of a 38-year-old man and go, okay, well, my family wasn't equipped to deal with it. And there was maybe a value on uh, toughness or having a thick skin in general in the area where I grew up. And it just felt like what I was experiencing was a reflection of some sort of weakness. And that wasn't necessarily a thing he put out there. So Chris kept his problems bottled up, which doesn't really work. Freshman year of high school, I sat at a lunch table and these kids next to us, were a year older than us, and they kept throwing food at us. And we went to the teachers, and they said, all right, we'll keep an eye out for it, and they didn't. Nothing happened. We went and told people who weren't in the lunchroom, nothing happened. And I realized at a certain point that everyone at my table grew up in the area called Up the Hill, which was a much gentler part of town. I was the one who grew up down the hill. And I kind of got it in my head of, if somebody, if anybody's gonna just deal with this, it's gonna be me. And I was tiny. I was a late bloomer little kid. And I just kind of committed to, if this happens again, and I'm at the table when it happens, I gotta, I gotta step up. And uh, I, I'll never forget. I went for. I remember they would like throw up. You know, it started with little balled up pieces of bread, and then it was, all of a sudden, here's a piece of bologna, and it hit my friend. And they, it hit a point where they took a whole cup of chocolate pudding, and they threw it all over my friend Jason. And this is after a couple weeks of telling teachers and asking for help. I just looked at this kid and he just looked like he was going to cry. And I just jumped up out of my chair and uh, turned around Turned around, and this kid who threw it was, was, I mean, significantly bigger than me. And I knew I would get one shot at him. And uh, I, I wound up, I'll never forget, like, you know, those little lunchroom cartons of iced tea, like the little milk cartons of iced tea that they had. I remember picking one up and just smashing it across the bridge of his nose. And he jumped up out of his chair and he went to grab me and I just punched him a couple times. And I mean, I am not a kid who wants to be violent, but I felt like I got pushed to that place. And as someone who has very out of control emotions, you can imagine how much that was messing with me, that I felt like that was a thing I had to do. I felt very unsafe, very unprotected. And then I had to, you know, in my mind, I had to give into this violence and it was out of control emotion. And they brought us to the, uh, to the dean's office. And I was just like, I'll never forget, like bouncing with this adrenaline and just crying the whole time, just sitting there like shaking and crying. And the other kid was looking at me and he was like, visibly scared looking at me because I was just having this like meltdown. And the Dean was like, what happened back there? Like, like I'm like a nerdy little guy with glasses who's like the smallest kid in the freshman class. He's like, this is not you. I'm like, well, he kept coming at me and I kept trying to say something. And I was just rambling with all this out of control anger and emotion. If you Google depression symptoms, anger, out of control anger is right there on the list. Too many people think depression is just feeling sad, but it can mean so many things including what Chris described. Actually, in the course of that situation, one thing I left out that I don't often tell people is 
I remember I brought a razor to school and I remember one of the times they did it, I went into a lunchroom and tried to cut my wrist because my plan was they'll find me and I will, uh, a very, very melodramatic plan of a high school freshman, I'll write this kid's name in my blood as I'm dying so he knows it was his fault. That was like one of the things I wanted to do. And the the part that, again, the hilarious world, right? Like, and the <laughs> Irish Catholic side of me that wants to turn, I, I never forget, I brought a Bic razor. You know, like the single use razor, the bag that your, your parents keep in their linen closet in case a guest forgets their razor, like use this once and throw it away because the blade will be so dull halfway through the first shave. That's what I was trying to, I was like, why isn't, why isn't this working? Why so you were actually working? attempting it. You were trying to I, do it. I, I had some little, uh, cuts on there, but the razor was falling apart. I was like, oh, and I remember that incident so well. And I think that was the first time I ever tried to hurt myself. Um, from what I remember, uh, I'd fantasized about it for a while. Like, what would happen if I did that? That would really teach people a lesson. And this kid, Scott from my school, um, I remember having this plan of like, he's going to feel this is going to fuck his life up forever when he knows he caused this. I remember thinking of it as like a revenge option, but it didn't work. So I just had to haul off and punch him a couple of times. And for anybody who's listening to this, people who have seen me, people who know my work and my appearance, you can tell to this day, I'm not a fighter. I'm not a fighter uh, by look, but I've always been a little bit of a fighter. Um, Was there more than one person named Scott in your junior high? Because I'm thinking when you're writing in blood, do you oh, have to like yeah, what Scott... F. Look at that. It's Scott H. It would have been Scott H. <laughs> Maybe I should have. Uh, that's true. If you'd some only poor left Scott, Scott people like, would be like, uh, yeah, where do we some go? Scott who's like, I never even met that kid. <laughs> I never, what did I do? Sorry, you're going to jail. What did I do to this kid? I didn't even meet him. Chris has an easy time recalling things that happened a long time ago, and he's good at providing updates on processing those events. He's also good at updates on how other people are processing those events. You know what's fascinating, though? When my HBO special came out, one of the kids who uh, sat at that table sent me a message on Facebook. And he was like, I watched your special because, you know, there's been a lot of talk that a kid from the neighborhood took something this far. And I watched it, and all I can think about was that I sat there and I threw food at you. And I'm so sorry. But what was so fascinating was that was a kid who I actually was friends with by the end of high school. Mm. He was in the marching band. I wrote back. I was like, dude, we were friends by the end. You don't have to worry about that. And he goes, for, I for, he's like, I actually forgot that we were friends because I've sat here and thought, I've over the years thought about, I felt guilty about how I treated you. One kid who actually was a Catholic school kid from my neighborhood, I did not go to school with him, but the way he treated my brother and I are in our neighborhood, he's the one person that I've, I have heard that he is one of the bigger oh, I ran into this guy at a bar and he was talking about how proud he is of you. And I'm like, really? Because if he was crossing the street in front of me, I would hit the gas, not the brake. <laughs> really, great. Good to know he's so proud of me. Chris grows up and enrolls at Rutgers, the State University of New Jersey. Packs up his clothes, his books, his depression, and moves into the dorm. It's funny, when I got to Rutgers, you know one thing that really blindsided me was I would tell some of the stories that I'm telling you, and to me, they were very funny. I've always turned the dark stuff funny. But I remember kids at Rutgers, would, I, I'd be, they'd tell, oh, this, me and my brothers did this thing in high school and this and that, and everybody would be laughing. And then it would kind of come to my turn in the circle of like college kids drinking, and I'd be like, oh, yeah, I once uh, smashed a drink across a kid's face and then punched him twice in the head because he'd been throwing food at me for weeks and the teachers wouldn't do anything. And I would tell like some funny version of that story, and they would look at me with shock. And I, I re when I got to college, I realized, it was the first time I realized, I was like, oh, it did not have to fucking be that way. I didn't realize that. I thought that's what everybody's experience was in junior high and high school. And then all of a sudden I'm like, oh, there were other people who didn't deal with that. And it was, I actually lived uh, my freshman year with a kid who I went to school with. And I remember both of us really had to unwrap that of, holy shit. This wasn't normal. This was not normal. This was not normal. And we're 18. So I was 18. Uh, all of a sudden I have access to booze for the first time. Bad thing for a guy with my family's background. I'm realizing that my upbringing was pretty strange and unnecessary and unfair. Rutgers had an improv comedy group. Chris joined up and loved it. 
Now, many guests on this program have loved improv. Maybe there's something about being absolutely in the moment instead of worrying about the past or future. Or maybe it's just fun. For Chris, it was welcome relief. My mom got sick. My parents had to sell the house I grew up in because she needed a one-level house because she developed uh, what's called rheumatoid arthritis, which if you know what it is, it's not arthritis in the traditional sense. It's a crippling, life-changing thing. So now I can't go home again. And I was very, very mad at my parents. They did not realize how much I was mentally struggling. And struggling. And, and in my selfish mind, it was like, now I can't even go home. It's a lot to deal with. Oh, it was bad. So I found comedy and all of a sudden it was like the first thing in my life that I, I you know, I'd always had it in my, my mind that it would be so cool to be funny in a big way. I was, being the funny kid was a safety mechanism for me. That's what kept me out of trouble my whole life. Some of the, in, starting in junior high, um, there were people who protected me because they thought I was funny. And uh, when I found it in college, it, it was just like this adrenaline rush where people were rewarding it. People were viewing me positively. It was the first time in my life that I ever felt like I was regarded as cool in any way. Chris's depression was getting worse, so he increased his dosage of comedy. He started taking classes at Upright Citizens Brigade, an hour north by train in New York City. Today, UCB, as they call it, is the hub of improv and sketch comedy. Back then, it was smaller. It was a place a 19-year-old kid could jump in and make a big impression. Chris loved it a lot. In New Jersey, you know, there's the New Jersey transit trains and they take you to New York. And when they're pulling into and out of stations, they blast these horns to warn you. And that sound of that horn to this day, when I hear a New Jersey transit train blast its horn, it has this instinctive effect on me where I'm like, that's how I escaped. That, that train though, to me, I remember I'd, I'd get on that train in New Brunswick, New Jersey, and I'd know it was carrying me towards something that felt worth doing, feeling like a weight off the shoulders. Like it, so many moments where I would spend a whole week at Rutgers feeling pissed off or feeling scared, feeling lonely. And then I'd get on the train and just go, <sighs> and that train ride to the city was the best. But the train ride back from the city oh. felt like death, felt like I am I am turning myself back into You're prison. regressing all over. Yeah, and I, I was also so tired and exhausted from the depression that I remember like I'd find other kids who looked like my age and I'd go, hey, are you going back to New Brunswick? If they said, yeah, I'd say, hey, I'm going I'm to sit across from you. Can you wake me up? Can you wake me up? Because I'd fall asleep on the trains and I was never sleeping. I was never all that stuff. And I knew I was like so many times that I just woke up in Princeton and I was like, oh God. Oh, jeez. Oh, God. You got to sleep for a while to get to Princeton. Yeah. But it's the next stop. It's the next stop where you'd wake up at the next stop. And oh, God. Did you know that what you had was called depression by that point? The depression, I was like, okay, this is depression. I've heard of this. The things that were far more confusing to me were the mania and the panic attacks. I did not put it together that those things were related. I thought mania was when I was at my best. I was like, this is me. This is the cloud of the depression lifting. This is me when I'm the life of the party. This is me when I'm let's stay up for two days and do a bunch of crazy shit. Let's drive somewhere. Let's go somewhere. Let's ditch classes and do something we weren't expecting. The depression was a thing from a young age. The mania didn't really kick into college. And I look back and realize that the people who loved me the most were far more concerned with the mania than the depression. Depression looks like sadness. They know what that is. It would get to a point where it was like, we're all hanging out and I don't want to go to sleep and let's go out, let's go drink, let's drive somebody. Why, why, we're in New Jersey. Why, why are we not swimming in the ocean right now? Oh, because it's 3.30 in the morning, Chris, and it's early October. That's why we're not swimming. But the Jersey Shore is right here. Why are we not going living that dream? You know, like, and, and the people who had come along with me on these adventures were people who I'd just met by the end because the people who knew me were like, this is- They knew where I was this, going. This is out of control again. Um, and the panic attacks- I just thought I was dying. I did not understand back then that those were all reflections of the same issues. I remember very distinctly one in college where I, I actually, like my legs gave out from under me and I hit the floor and I couldn't breathe and my face went numb instantly. And, and that was always a thing to me was my breathing would get so out of control that I would, I would become numb, like physically pins and needles. And I remember once collapsing 
and it happening instantly and just being convinced, oh, I'm, I'm dying. Something physically with me is wrong. Like, is this an aneurysm? Is this a stroke? What's happening to me? So did you get to the doctor? Did you say, well, no, 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 no. you waited for it to pass and then you figured it was nothing? Yeah. And then they would happen again. And uh, there were a few people in my life who were aware of it at that point. A couple of my friends, I think, really realized something was up and they would look for me. My friend Jeff hates when I ask and when I thank him for this, but he, uh, when we were sophomores, I lived, I lived in a house with six guys and we all wound up hating each other. And one of them really went out of his way to make my life bad. And uh, my friend Jeff would let me sit in his room. He was a night owl and he had a good internet connection, which people who grew up in the 90s remember, we didn't all have Wi-Fi. Not a, we didn't have like a supercomputer in our pocket. It was like, if you knew somebody who had fast internet, that was your best friend. And he'd let me, he would stay up late and study because that was his MO and I'd just sit on his computer and we wouldn't even talk. And I've told him a few of those nights saved my life for sure. Yeah. Just the fact that he opened his door and let me sit there and that he saw that I was so fucked up and he didn't judge it. He didn't ask any questions. He didn't overreact. He didn't get uncomfortable. It was just, I just go, hey, Jeff, can I use your computer? And he'd go, yeah. A moment of appreciation here for all the Jeffs in our lives. Take a moment to think about who your Jeff is or was. Pause the show if you need to. It's okay. Okay, welcome back. And thank you to all Jeffs. Jeffs? Jeffs. So Chris Gethard at this point is basically a young adult. He's going to college full-time. He's traveling up to New York to do comedy a lot. And he also has a job to help pay for all this. And fairly out-of-control mental illness. It's quite a combo. If I had to get to work, let's say I had to get to work at 9, so I'd set my alarm for 7.30, I would wake up at 5.45 and just go, <gasps> convinced that I had overslept. And I'd look at the clock, and it would be 5.45. And I'd go back to sleep. And then all of a sudden, <gasps> Convinced I had overslept, and it would be 6 a.m., <gasps> 6.08 a.m., <gasps> 6.17 a.m., all the way up until when I actually had to be awake. This would happen literally every night for about two or three years. I was so exhausted all the time because I couldn't sleep right, and I was also constantly on the move, kind of running away from, from people, trying to have all these sort of like involvement in multiple communities in a surface way so that I didn't have to have deep connections with people who would come to understand something was very much wrong with me. Things finally came to a head. The mental problems, the stress, the exhaustion, the lack of tools to deal with all that. So visualize this. One night, Chris is driving. A New Jersey road where everyone's going fast. A truck in front of him, it's like a really big pickup truck, gets in the right-hand turn lane. And then the truck's driver changes his mind, heads back into the lane where Chris is. In that situation, as a driver, you either brake or you swerve to avoid the accident. And I just let go. I realized, I, I look back and, and so distinctly, real, I could have hit the brake and I just kept my foot on the gas. And I could have stopped it, but I just remember feeling like, thank God, I'm going to die. Thank God. So I still don't know exactly if that classifies as a suicide attempt. More in a moment. The Hilarious World of Depression is supported by Health Partners and by MakeItOK.org. Make It OK is a campaign to start conversations and stop the stigma surrounding mental illness, not just depression, but all kinds of mental illnesses. We enjoy having a lot of laughs on this show. It's a way of dealing with depression. It's a way of maybe demystifying it a little bit, make it not so scary. But let's not kid ourselves. Depression is a serious disease. The good news is that people can and do recover. They get help. And that's why we need to make it okay to talk openly. Now, that can be an awkward conversation, of course. But makeitokay.org is full of information you can use. What to say, what not to say. And stories from people who tell you what it's like to live with depression, anxiety, and other mental illnesses. Go to makeitokay.org where you can take the pledge to make it okay. Thank you so much to Health Partners and to Make It Okay for joining us in fighting stigma so we can all get better. We want to thank all of our sponsors and we want to 
bring all our listeners' attention to those sponsors, especially when you hear me use one of those promotional codes, like use promo code hilarious at checkout, that kind of thing. Because when you use those, you get great deals, which is nice, but it also really helps us because those sponsors, uh, they, they keep track of people using those things. And they say, ah, the people who listen to Hilarious World of Depression, they're really active and I want to keep sponsoring that show. See? See the connection? So if you use those codes and go to those sponsors, it's like voting for the show. It's like uh, rallying behind our program. And we appreciate that very much. Talking to Chris Gethard, when last we left, well, it was a cliffhanger. His exhaustion and depression are at their peaks. He's behind the wheel. He's about to be in a collision. He's doing nothing to avoid it. I didn't write a note. It wasn't something I woke up planning to do. But I remember so much viewing it as a release and as like an unexpected opportunity. At this point, the truck slams into Chris's car. It was in a neighborhood that was built on a hill. And uh, the driveways of these houses had these, you know, the concrete walls that you see when houses are built on hills, those terraced lawns that go up at an angle. And I, I hit that wall head on and, and the car bounced up onto the front lawn. Chris tells this story with more detail in career suicide, especially when the driver of the truck confronts him. This guy says, get the fuck out of the car. I realize this is the driver of the truck I hit. He's coming towards me from the truck. He's a big dude. He's jacked. Scary looking, not even because of the muscles, because of his outfit. He's wearing a flannel shirt with the sleeves torn off. <laughs> and the shirt is tucked into a pair of Daisy Dukes. It's very disconcerting, <laughs> very disconcerting. So he says, get the fuck out of the car. I say, I, I can't, man, the door, it's all caved in. It doesn't, it doesn't work anymore. And he says, I'm gonna fuck you up. And he walks around the car. And just before he gets to the passenger side door, another voice, North Jersey, Italian-American male accent. This guy sounds a lot like my best friend Anthony's dad. And, and this guy just goes, hey, calm down, man. Look at him, huh? He's just a kid. Look at him, man. He's just a kid. The guy driving the truck finally leaves, and Chris turns to the guy who rescued him. When I thanked him, he... he, he used racist language as his explanation of why he didn't let me, he didn't want to let a black person beat me up, but he did not use that phrase. Casey didn't pick up on that. The guy who rescued him used the N-word. It was horrible. And it was significant. That was when I knew there is a window closing here. I was very aware of it from that point forward. That's how I'd phrase it, of I am now on a countdown clock. I knew it. This has gotten bad enough that that happened, and uh, without help, that's going to happen again. I knew it. These are sometimes the sobering moments that send a person to finally get help. But not so with Chris. Instead, the depression evolved. It morphed into new forms, such as paranoia. Every time I drove at night, I would be completely convinced that the car behind me was a police car about to pull me over. And when I say every time I drove at night, I mean every if it was after sundown and I was driving and a car was behind me, I was convinced that was a cop. I would pull over and let them pass. I would drive with just a complete level of fear and tension. I also, you know, I was in that car crash and I had a couple speeding tickets. So I had a lot of points on my license. If I got any more points, my license was gonna be suspended. I mean, I was like a young kid, and we all drive like idiots. And I also drove for work, making deliveries. So I was just always behind the wheel of a car, and I got a, a couple of tickets. I got, like, I think, maybe two speeding tickets and an illegal right turn on red, and then the car crash. Mm. Um, and all those points added up. I, I, I don't remember if the crash got me points, but I was on my last legs driving was the point. So this looming thing that I would lose my license, it was just always the cops were after me. And then... Rutgers, very big campus, as you know, they have the buses. You take the buses all around. And I would, I got to a point where um, it was, they didn't have like the pull cords on the buses. They had the push things. And I was just convinced that I did not want to leave my fingerprints on those things. I was convinced that people would be able to track my movements um, if that was the case. So I would just be on the bus praying that someone else was getting off at my stop 
And if I managed to push it, I would push it at the last second in like a total just like just frustration. And sometimes I would just, you know, okay, the next stop, there's three dorms next to it. Someone's getting off the river dorms. I guess I'll just walk back. It was at this point Chris finally started to recognize things as truly falling apart. He called his friend Teresa. They had dated and broken up but were still close friends. And Teresa laid down an ultimatum. She was going to call my mother the next morning um, and that I had to I had to go home and wake up my mother and tell her what was going on and that was that that was a that was the hard conversation in my life. That was the hard conversation in my life. That conversation with my mom. Because saying it out loud to her was more serious and more more long lasting than even saying it to yourself. Yeah, I mean I knew I knew that I knew that uh at that point it wasn't gonna get bottled back up. And I also just knew how much it was gonna scare her. I just knew it. And my dad at that time, um for his work, he was spending large portions of the year working in Puerto Rico just by random circumstance. That's where his work had placed him. And my mom would go visit him sometimes uh, for like a month at a time, but she didn't, she didn't, she doesn't drive a car. She's not a traveler. She's not looking to, you know, in her old age, she wasn't looking, it wasn't an exciting thought for her to go live in an island in the sea. She wanted to be home. So she was there alone. And the whole time I was driving home, I was like, I know I have to do it, but holy shit, is this gonna scare my mom? And I just never want to, that's one of the misguided things about the whole situation. When I look back, it was like, I don't, I just want to ride this out until it's fixed because uh, it'll blow over and then I don't have to scare everybody. And then when they found out, they were infinitely more scared than they would have been if I had told them years prior. In Career Suicide, Chris tells what happened when he finally did talk to his mom. I shake my mom awake and, and she's really confused. And I, I just blurt it out. I say, mom, I'm suicidal and I'm really scared. And she's blindsided by that. And, and I never, I never want to see my mom that frightened ever again. And, and she puts on her glasses and, and she says, I didn't know. I, I don't know what to do. What, what, do, what do you think we should do? And I think to myself, she sounds so much like Carmela Soprano. <laughs> it's ridiculous. <laughs> feels good to tell somebody what's going on. And it feels good to ask for help. And, and my mom, she steps up, helps me find a doctor at a clinic on Bloomfield Avenue in Verona, New Jersey. So that's good. Still had to tell his dad, though. One of the things I regret the most is I didn't want to let down my dad. I just let him down how like he was a hard working blue collar guy. And I felt like I should be able to handle my shit. Like he's always handled his shit. And just a couple years ago, um, uh, this American life actually asked my dad to interview me and it was very strange. And I did not get to vet the questions first. I had no idea what was coming. And his big question was, uh, when you were, dealing with everything. Why didn't you tell me? And I told him that uh, I didn't want to let him down and I didn't want to scare him. And I didn't know if he'd know what to do. And I didn't want to, I didn't want to want him to see me that way. And he said to me, I would not have known what to do. And when he first said that, that was like a total scary moment. It, it brought me back to feeling 12, 13 years old, being like, oh my God, that fear was real. But then he immediately said, I, he goes, I would not have known what to do, but I would have run through a wall to find you. Uh, what the help you needed. And I, I really uh, realized how much unnecessary pain I put myself through and unnecessary fear I put people around me through over the years, largely because of this like misguided, you know, feeling of, of toughness and, you know, masculinity and our father's generation's values. And to hear him say that, I just felt such regret at my own behavior. 
I'll never forget that. I would not have known what to do. That was the quote, I think. I would not have known what to do, but I would have run through a wall to find you the person who did. And uh, that, I just realized how little credit I gave the people around me, thinking I had to fix it all myself. Chris Gethard, at long last, got help. He started on some meds, trying to see which ones work. He gets out of college, he pursues comedy full-time, and he starts going to therapy. I remember even when it wasn't a good match, and even when it was so annoying to go, and I felt like it was just these men who were uh, not doing right by me, I just remember feeling like very proud out of the gate of like, oh, I'm working on it. This is... Almost, in a, you know, I take my dad, I, I inherited my dad's workaholic stretch. It's like, oh, I can work. I can get to work. Let me work on this. And that felt good. When did you start talking about this depression and your experiences and some of your horrible experiences within the context of comedy or performance? Well, in very classic fashion, to make it full circle, the first time I made jokes about it was with my family because that was the only way we were going to feel comfortable. In my early days, I remember telling my mom, hey, I'm going to go on medications. It's very, for now it's more accepted, thank God. But even I think around the turn of the, the, the millennium, it was still a thing of like, okay, are you going to turn into a zombie man? You know, let alone for my parents where it was like, what's that mean? Are you getting your brain electrocuted? You know what I mean? Like that's, that's what we thought. So I remember telling my mom, and then my mom told my dad, and my dad came to me and was like, how, how are those pills working? And I was like, good, good, good. And we all just felt so awkward. So I, the first jokes I would ever make about it, I'd be at the dinner table with my family, and uh, someone would say, oh, maybe, maybe, you know, nothing related to this stuff. Maybe we should do this. And I go, I, I don't think I can do that. Why? Uh, well, that scares me. Why? Because I'm crazy. And I remember that was the first joke. I'd go, mom, I'm crazy. You got to remember, I'm crazy. She goes, you're not crazy. Don't say you're crazy. And I go, I am crazy. I'm on pills. You want me to show you the pills? What do you think the pills are for, Ma? You see the pills in the medicine. You see the pills on my dresser? You think, those, what do you think? I got heartburn? You know what they're for. I'm crazy. You know I'm crazy. And then she'd be laughing. And then my dad would laugh. And then my brother would laugh. And then everybody's guard went down because of jokes. Having tested the material on that small audience, Chris Gethard was ready for a bigger crowd. I started as an improviser at UCB, and I started playing a lot of depressed characters. Started playing a lot of characters who were recently medicated. I started playing a lot of characters who could only see the grim side of the world. And I remember almost having like a, in my head of like, hee 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 like <laughs> they don't realize how real this is, and I'm getting it out. And then I started a show called Nights of Our Lives in 2006. It's actually still running at UCB, which is astounding to me. It's a subtle shift there, but an important one. Chris was playing characters dealing with the same issues he was. And then he started being himself, telling this hero's journey story that he had lived through, stating his truth about depression in front of witnesses. I think I wanted to feel power over it instead of it feeling power over me. I think I was getting to a point where I was medicated. I was feeling a little stronger, feeling a little regretful of having let it kind of beat me up for so many years. So I think I was like, I want to talk about this just so I own it. But you know what I realized very quickly was when I would tell stories, and not all of them dealt with this stuff, but when I would tell stories that dealt with this stuff, it always felt like the least safety net I'd had as a performer. But anytime I got a laugh, I would immediately feel like I'm not alone. If that person got, and, and, and I can tell you so honestly, sometimes I'd figure out how to get big laughs and I'd be like, oh, great, I'm conquering this. But the ones I look back on that almost meant the most to me was like something that would happen that would, I'd be like, oh, this audience is very, very unsettled right now. I have made them very uncomfortable. And then you just hear like one person in the back corner 
laughing as hard as they laughed all night. Just that one person where I'd go, that's the other fucked up person. Because you've said the thing that they haven't said out loud Exactly. Before. They're laughing because they get it. And I remember so well what it was like to not get it. And I remember what it felt like to feel like I'm the only... There, UCB back then, it was, I think, 175-seat theater. That show would sell out. I'm like, that's the one... I remember what it feels like to be the one in 175 or thinking I was the one in 175. And tonight, that girl's laughing... So she now knows, and I now know, it's two in 175. <laughs> and that felt exciting. Chris Gethard is looking back on his life in the context of depression through that lens, figuring out what mental illness had been doing to him all this time. And a lot of us have done this. But unlike most of us, Chris is a comedian. So a lot of the time he was figuring it out, he was figuring it out on stage. He had been working on that material for a while, just trying it out. And then he went on a stand-up tour, opening for comedian and monologuist Mike Berbiglia. Driving, you know, from Wichita to Omaha, or wherever it was, not much to see. And we'd been on the road for months together. And he's like, what's the darkest it ever got? And I told him that car crash story. And he just goes, that's hilarious, man. I was like, that's the least hilarious thing I have to talk about. Why did he think it was hilarious? I think at the end of the day, not being cocky, I didn't want to admit it, but it was. It was. Just because of the pickle that you would put yourself in? I think me explaining the exposition, I know how to be funny. I know how to tell stories. So I'm telling a story with my usual rhythms. So there it's a little funny. You knew where the arc was in the story. Yeah, the guy trying to beat me up. I always remembered that he wore these like cut-off denim shorts and like a weird shirt with the sleeves ripped off. That's funny. To almost get beat up by a guy who's dressed like an extra like he's dressed like like Daisy Duke. Like he he really Like someone who didn't funny. make callbacks for the village people. Exactly. He's dressed like a village person and he's like, I'm gonna beat those shit out of you. Like that's fun. It is funny. I hate to say it. I hate to say it. There is nothing funny at all about the language that that guy used. But the idea that in the darkest moment of my life, the person who saved me saved me because of racism, there's something twisted and funny about it. Audiences agreed. And imagine this. His career was on an upswing because of his material about a near suicide by negligence. And people noticed. Filmmaker and producer Judd Apatow noticed. He eventually sat me down and he went, you're an artist. You're really good as an artist. You're a terrible businessman. You want me to see if we can sell this thing? And I said, yeah. And he, I never spoke to HBO. I never pitched the show to HBO. He went and did it. Um, I just got a call one day. He's like, HBO wants to do your show. And I was like, oh, what a weird world you live in where that's not life-changing. For me, you just changed my life. For you, you just sold another thing because you liked someone. He's a great, great, great man who looks out for people. But... The big challenge he gave me, he said, I want you to go do this in different cities around the country, and I want you to do Q&As with the audience afterwards. Hmm. And I felt very cringy about that. I felt like that was not going to, I felt like, I was like, man, I'm a comedian. I got to be a comedian. He's like, just do it. Do it. I'm telling you to do it as a producer. I thought no one would stay, and I thought it would be useless. I would say generally, every time I did one of those Q&As, 90% of the audience stayed, and they wound up telling their own stories or asking me questions in a way that was like shockingly open. It really guided me and helped me realize which parts of the show and which parts of the mentality of the show were getting through. I had a girl once come to, up to me. I, I started doing it at Union Hall when I was workshopping the show. A girl, I'll never forget, a girl came up to me afterwards. She said, I, I dated a guy who fell into real bad depression and it was, uh, it was really annoying to date him. I feel horrible right now. I just watched your show. And I, I stopped her. I said, no, ask any woman I dated in that era. It was horrible. It was not fair. And she goes, I've never, I want to email him and I want to say, hey, I understand a little bit more what you're going through. And I'm sorry that I just kind of disappeared. Uh, I, I, it was good that we couldn't be together. I should have done it a different way. She's like, how do I do that? And I said, I think you, I think you just go send that email and say what you just said. And she literally just turned around and like ran up the steps. Like she was gonna go do it right then. I had a, a couple, 
come up to me and say that they had a son whose doctor had recommended medication. And uh, they said, no, he's eight or nine years old. We're not gonna medicate this kid. And they came up to me and they said, you know, we're not gonna go call the doctor and have him put in the prescriptions, but we're gonna talk to him again and remember that he's a doctor. And that whatever we have in our heads about these medications is like a cultural taboo. He's a doctor. Those were the conversations that came out of those Q and A's that Judd made me do, where I was like, oh, this is, this is taking a turn from me going, can I say things that kids like me didn't get to hear towards me going, can I say the things that my parents would have wanted to hear? The show runs off Broadway. HBO airs it, big hit, life changer. And Chris becomes famous for it. Everyone wants to talk to him. It is the thing that I assume I will be most proud of on my deathbed. It is also, if I'm being totally honest, a curse. Because to this day, including right up until yesterday, and perhaps right now if I was to check the inbox of any social media I have, People reach out to me on a regular basis and they tell me very, very dark things from their lives. Very often people thank me for it and I'm grateful and I always get a little kick of like, all right, it did some good. I did some good. But I also see people who reach out to me who are clearly reaching out to someone they saw on HBO instead of getting help, who are mistaking me for someone who is potentially some sort of guide or guru. I have no interest in being that. I have people who have told me things that are so profoundly sad that it's impossible to not take on a little bit of psychic damage because I'm very, very honored that people make it a mission. I want to tell him my story too, because he told me his, and this feels like a thank you. And it is, and I recognize that it's a thank you. I also know that they have it as this mission in their head of I'm going to walk up to this guy. I'm going to come see this guy at stand. I'm going to wait for him outside. And they'll wait for me after the club and they'll go, hey, uh, here's the darkest thing that ever happened to me. And it was a thing that meant a lot to them to go, you did this and I can get it off my chest and I'm sharing with you. And that's beautiful. It's also happened to me at this point a couple thousand times. And I say that not to say that I'm developing a thick skin to it. I'm not is the problem. I don't want to. Like you, I'm sure. I never want to hear one of these stories and not care. I never want to go, oh, yeah, I've heard a version of that a hundred times. If you ever run out of emails, we have thousands more we could forward on. I can't on do it. I will, be, I will be very, very honest. <laughs> you guys, you know, you've had to, it, it seems like this podcast to me should have been a perfect, like I should have been the first guest. <laughs> you've had to chase me down in a big way. Was, I've been sent many emails and I have, I have done a lot of soul searching where- uh, Were you reluctant to do it? I have been reluctant to speak publicly about depression in any way. I will say that uh, I was avoiding this conversation, but I have, I have uh, looked into the work that you're doing enough that I, I feel comfortable. When I talked to Chris Gethard after we successfully hunted him down, his TV show, The Chris Gethard Show, had just been canceled by True TV like a few days before. Naturally, I was wondering how he was handling it. The answer I got sounded like someone who has worked hard on knowing his own mind and his mental health. I'm pretty relieved, to be honest. Like It was uh, something that I think would have crushed me a few years ago, but... Anybody who knows the history of the show knows that it started very small and then it kind of developed a cult fan base while it was on public access TV, which is very homemade, very scrappy, and then went to cable and that was like a nice victory lap. But now we've done three seasons on cable and 47 episodes on cable. So it's kind of no longer a victory lap and it's kind of uh, becoming professional to a degree that was maybe not totally in the spirit of the show and the pressure was on and... We had a network to please and they had advertisers to please. And I think it was, uh, I think it was always kind of at its most natural and at its best when it was uh, an underground thing. And I think when it existed as this kind of outlier on, on TV that could still be a little bit underground, I was happy, but the pressure was coming down and the numbers needed to go up and I wasn't so interested in that. And I think the, uh, 
the network was really interested in that. And they had a very, very kind conversation with me where they were like, you know, we, we are getting the sense that maybe you're not so into it anymore. And I said, yeah, it's, uh, we're fighting a lot about a thing I love and I don't want to remember it that way. So I think it's best to just walk away and let it exist as a thing that people remember fondly and go see what's next. And so, having pursued and ultimately trapped Chris Gethard, it was time to release him once more into the wild. Chris Gethard, thanks. Thank you. Sorry I dodged your emails for so long. That's all right. I've been hiding hiding from the world. Chris Gethard has a new book coming out on October 16th. It's called Lose Well. The Hilarious World of Depression is produced by American Public Media. Our producer is Chrissy Pease. Christina Lopez is our web and social media grand dame. Kate Moose is executive producer. Technical director is Corey Schreppel. Our theme song was written and performed by Rhett Miller. If you need help, confidential help is available at the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, one 800 273-8255. It's free. It's 24 hours a day, seven days a week. 1-800-273-8255. The Hilarious World of Depression is supported by Health Partners and MakeItOK.org. Make It OK is a campaign to start conversations and stop the stigma around mental illness. MakeItOK.org has information that can help you and your loved ones. Starting a conversation like that can be awkward. Make It OK has tips on what to say, what not to say, stories of hope from people who've been there. You can take the pledge to Make It OK at MakeItOK.org. HilariousWorld.org is our web home. You can find all of our old shows there. We're also on Twitter. And come visit us on Facebook. A lot of great conversation over on Facebook with fellow Thwadballs. New shows being formed, bubbling up from the primordial ooze of shows. It's a good hang. Come hang out with us. On our next episode, comedian and actor Scott Thompson reveals the secret behind the success of his legendary sketch comedy group, Kids in the Hall. Basically, the, the two things in our family were, they were the parents were alcoholics or violent or both. Mm. And, um, or not just, or else in Mark's case, the parents were um, distant and just not there. We were related to each other. We were, we, and we became brothers. I mean, I honestly think of them as my brothers. I love them like crazy, and they are my brothers. I'm John Moe. Bye now. Something I don't know Would you say I'm a sad clown Tell me something I don't know